0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton.
1: Uh, 1.2 billion people, or 16% of the global population, don't have access to electricity. And to address this global challenge, leaders across sectors and geographies are developing innovative off-grid solutions, energy solutions, to achieve universal access to power. In today's episode uh, of Backstreet to Wall Street, we're going to talk with uh, initially with uh, entrepreneur Nikhil Jaisinghani of Miragao Power, uh, and joining me is uh, Doreen Shanaz, founder of uh, Impact Investment Exchange. Uh, Doreen and uh, Nikhil, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast today.
2: Thank you very much for having me. I
3: appreciate uh,
1: the opportunity. Great. Uh, Doreen, uh, shall I turn it over to you to ask the first question?
0: Sure. Thanks, Mukul. Um, great. So, well, uh, welcome, uh, Nikhil, to the show, and welcome to our audience. This is uh, this is sh- this is today's episode is about achieving universal access to energy. So we are very excited uh, to have the founder of uh, Mirga Power uh, joining us to talk about how he is actually achieving this in India. And uh, just to just to give a little bit of background to our listeners. Um, Mega Power, it's an off-grid solar company, and it's delivering actually very low-cost energy services to remote parts of and villages across India. And uh, this Mega Power has created very low-cost, commercially viable grid, and we're going to discuss more about this uh, with Nikhil, um, which provides access to energy to the most of the remotest parts of of India, and uh, I guess even in the state called Uttar Pradesh. Um, for less than $2 a month. Uh, That's what it costs for the end users. And the company serves these communities, which otherwise would have no access to electricity whatsoever. Um, So this is absolutely fantastic. So uh, to get started, Nikhil, why don't you tell us a little bit more? Um, Tell us a little bit more about what Mirga Power has done over the years. This is really a remarkable story. And, And tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, and what inspired you
1: to do this work? Sure.
2: Well, uh, it probably started for me uh, about 20 years ago when I was in the Peace Corps in a small village in Nepal, and I lived about a 2 days hike from the nearest road and in, a, in a little village that had no electricity. And when I first got there, it seemed kind of quaint, kind of fun to, to live without electricity using kerosene lanterns at night, but it didn't take very long for that to, to get a little tiresome. And I noticed over the, the, the few years I was living there how difficult it was for the people I was living with and, and amongst to get normal activities done specifically in the evening because of lack of, of just basic electricity for lighting. The, uh, the, I took that with me and, and in fact, started uh, another company in Nigeria with my uh, co-founder, Brian Shad. And that was a service-based company. We were looking at services as a way of providing value to people in poor areas, uh, poor communities. And uh, then when I moved to India, started looking again for the same basic idea of a way to provide services rather than products to the poor so that they didn't have to to, to shoulder the burden of paying for technology but could still use it uh, without having to pay that upfront cost of buy-in. And so lighting seemed like a, a clear opportunity. First, there were solar lantern companies that were uh, were targeting India. Uh, I knew from my own experience how important lighting was, but we didn't want to do it as a as a lantern company with a product. We wanted to do a a lighting as a service model. So we designed a microgrid, a solar powered microgrid. And have uh, spent a few years refining it. We're really working with our customers to understand the their needs. Nicole,
0: I will. Sorry, I will. I will jump in. Um, sure. Just again for our audience. So uh, we have to sort of take it one step at a time because for a lot of us, obviously, these are all new concepts. So mm-hmm. uh, in terms of um, you know, you saw the need. Obviously, there was no electricity in these remotest parts of uh, what you saw in Nepal and of course in India. Now, what how did you sort of see what type of system? I mean, are you an engineer by background, or did you just sort of go around and and seek out, you know, what's the best way or the most cost-effective way to bring electricity? I mean, why did you move it for solar? I mean, uh, mm-hmm. what was the decision process? And then, sure, you know, tell us a little bit more about the actual system itself, you know, because I know this is a DC direct um, current-based system, but, again, just walk us through it a little bit.
2: Sure. So when we started looking at these, these, the communities that were off-grid and, and identifying, A, the, the communities we were most interested in serving, which were the, the remotest and, and poorest and least likely to be grid electrified, uh, we noticed a few things. First is, is that we saw the payment capacity was limited. We saw what people were paying for kerosene, uh, which is a fuel that people use in, in these uh, tin lanterns uh, that they can burn at night to produce a very dim but uh, um, uh, but uh, but basic amount of lighting uh, for indoor house use. And so we started looking at what people were using, what people were paying, and we decided what we wanted to do was focus on a level of service that was going to be uh, as impactful as possible but still affordable to our customers. And we, we identified that to be right around $2 a month. Um, okay. So
0: two, and what does, two, that get, what does that get the end customer for $2 a right.
2: month? So we designed this microgrid to, for $2 a month. Our, our intention was to provide initially simply lighting, the two light points. But we, we found out over time that our customers were really interested in having their phones charged as well. And the reason that is is not because they needed those phones to communicate with each other uh, or to make calls or access uh, in, access the internet, but because the phone is the cheapest multimedia device available in the market. And so when people would go out to the field to work during the days, they would want to listen to music. And when they came home at night, they would watch a movie on one uh, uh, on a you know two, two and a half inch screen. And so they needed to have that phone charge in order to provide themselves with entertainment. And so we developed a package of two lights and one phone charger, which operate Uh, for seven hours each night, starting at sunset. So at the time where people were still awake but were going to need light to do their chores, uh, make dinners, eat, clean everything they needed to do before bed for when children need to study. So we timed it to be from sunset for seven hours, two lights and a phone charger. And that's uh, the service that the customers get for $2 a month. And as long as they pay that $2 a month...
0: Sorry, Nikhil, so basically from, from 7 o'clock in the evening for seven hours they can get two lights and a phone charger, is that right. correct? That's correct. Okay, great. Okay, and what kind of impact have you seen of that? Are you measuring the impact of, of, the, of this uh, access to this energy that people are getting?
2: We've, we've ourselves tried to, to measure that impact. Um, we can we've seen some data. Um, the, the, the biggest impact we can measure is on uh, on children's education, the amount of time children spend studying, and parents tell us that that their children spend a significant amount of mo- more time studying each night as a result. What it doesn't do, and what what uh, you know what we never expected it to, it does not encourage a child who otherwise would not study or. Uh, you know, a child whose parents have not encouraged them to study to study. So we don't we don't find that a child is more likely to study um, as a result of light. But if a child is studious, wants to study, wants to learn, and is, is spending some time at night studying by kerosene lantern, they spend significant amount of time, additional time studying with these electric lights. So it really supports students uh, to to to. to, to Allow them to, to study more at night. We've we've seen that it allows shop owners to keep their shops own, open longer. Uh, we we've, we've heard from our customers that they're earning more income. Although we don't consider ourselves survey experts or data gathering experts, and so we don't we don't spend a lot of time gathering that data. But anecdotally, our customers tell us that's what they're able to do with it. The biggest Indication to us that our customers are getting values that they continue to pay us. And as long as they continue to pay us, that tells us that we are providing them with a service that is valuable to them and and life-changing.
1: Nikhil, I I, I believe that uh, you uh, won, the uh, in 2012, Miragao Power was awarded the World Economic Forum Technology Pioneer Award. Uh, and you've also gotten some awards from the MIT Technology Review magazine, and you've been recognized by the Indian government as well. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the technology that makes it possible for you to generate and distribute power at, uh, you know, a couple of dollars a month. Uh, And also, how scalable is the technology? What kind of impact do you expect to have?
2: Right. The the technology... the. the the microgrids that we build are solar powered, so we install two solar panels, two batteries in a, in a cabinet uh, within the village, and then we run distribution lines around these villages or I should call them hamlets. These communities tend to be very small, so under 50 households um, get together in a, in a cluster. And so for, for that type of community, to extend the national grid to reach these needs. It costs somewhere in the area of $15,000, depending on how many kilometers away they are from the nearest distribution uh, line. And we're able to connect that village for, for just under $1,000. And that involves those two panels, those two batteries, a number of distribution lines, and then we install lights and phone chargers in our customers' homes. What, what makes it great is how simple it is, and, and that's important for a number of reasons. One is that our staff, the staff that we have that we hire to install these microgrids are themselves local, uh, untrained, not skilled electricians, and yet they can learn how to build a microgrid in a relatively short period of time. And again, because of the simplicity, three people can go into a village in the morning and have connected, have installed the microgrid and connected households by the evening. And so it's a less than one day installation process. Per community, for uh, each of these microgrids. So that means that it's very scalable. We have, uh, we, we don't have uh, exact figures, but we we think there's over 100,000 of these communities in Uttar Pradesh that are uh, that are off-grid or, or less than 10% electrified, where there's significant market for what we offer, uh, where the the level of um, service that we provide is is very meaningful, and that there is no other substitute. They aren't grid electrified, so they can't get a larger level of service. And so, for that, for that 000, those hundred thousand communities, the service that we provide is very meaningful. And our, our quick installation time allows us to expand, or will allow us to expand, uh, very quickly over the coming years to serve not a hundred thousand, but as many of those as we possibly can. I think it's going to be the scalability, the potential of that market is so large that we're not going to run out of uh, potential communities to serve. We're going to run out of money and, and, um, before we can ever get to that point. So the, the, the amount of money available to us uh, at this point, we continuously have to raise more money uh, to finance future years of, of growth, and, and that is more the constraint than it is the market size itself.
0: So, Nikhil, um, and let me jump in with that. Let's let's talk about a little bit on scale. Um, so, you know, uh, IX has been working with with Mirga Power now for you know several years, and you have um, you have helped you raise um, capital several times now on our equity crowdfunding. Now, tell us a little bit about that growth. Um, you know, when we started working with you, where you were because now you are um, you just raised two point five million dollars and You are, you know, sort of uh, aiming to now work with over 20,000 households. So tell us about the growth over over the last five years, where you were, where are you now, and, you know, how does it look for you? Because all this work is now still happening in Uttar Pradesh, in India. Um, So, you know, how has the journey been, and how are you planning to grow?
2: It's, uh, it's been uh, a very interesting five years. Uh, and, and so the one thing I would note is that the, the technology sounds very straightforward and, and is quite simple, and that's a, that's a great benefit to us. But the operations, uh, particularly as the company scales, those operations get more and more complex. And so that's, that's been something we've had to, to stop and look at and really work on uh, over the last few years. The the company started In uh, with a with a uh, few pilots in in 2010 and 2011 uh, started growing very slowly in 2012 with a grant from USAID and then we raised commercial capital in 2013. We're currently serving uh, just short of 20,000 households of about 100,000 people in the in about 1,500 communities of Uttar Pradesh. The expectation is to grow uh, to 50,000 by the end of next year, by the end of 2018, we'll approach 50,000 households by the end of 2018. And we, the, the money that IX has helped us raise is, is exactly for that purpose, is to, help us, to help us grow. Now, over the last uh, 18 to 20 months, unfortunately, we, um, we were in a position where we needed capital but, but could not access it. And so we spent uh, a good portion of that time sitting there with a somewhat static customer base But we're able to, uh, at the same time, focus on those operational processes I mentioned so so that we could strengthen the processes and and develop processes that would be uh, strong enough to support 50,000, 100,000 households. So that's what we spent the last almost two years working on is is, is process, uh, innovation, uh, refinement, and simplification, uh, along with developing new technology to help us in those processes, simplifying the jobs for our staff on the ground. But the capital that the that, uh, IX has helped us raise is, is going to be critical. Um, we've already started growing again, which is great. Um, that money is going to help us raise additional money, and uh, and all that w- will uh, will help us get uh, to a bit of positive operations and and net profitability as well.
0: So, Nicole, I mean, you know, it's um, I mean, you're doing such fantastic work, right? and Mega Power, I mean, just, just even the thought of it, I mean, you you, know, you're, you have brought. Um, you know, electricity power to over 100,000 people. And, you know, you're poised to now bring it to hundreds of thousands of more people, um, you know, if you going to get, if you get more access to capital. I mean, I mean, just, I'm, I'm sure you have those moments, right? When you're just sort of pausing and saying, hold on, I'm such, doing such amazing work. How come people are not running and just kind of coming and, and helping us out? I mean, I mean, do you have those moments? I mean, what, what, what do you think the challenge is? And you know, and, and I think there's a story here for I think every social entrepreneur, right?
2: There, there, there certainly is, and it's uh, it, it. There are certainly moments where I'm I'm frustrated because I know that with capital we can do we can do great things. And uh, um, but at the same time, I I also look back and say it's it's fantastic that we've been able to raise capital. It's fantastic that the impact investment space has been there for us ten years ago. Uh, this, this idea never really would have gotten off the ground. USAID gave a grant to a for-profit in- entity to support the development of that business. It, that would never have happened 10 years ago. Um, so there's, there's capital that has come our way that, that we, are, we consider ourselves very fortunate that the timing worked out as it did to allow us uh, to get that chance. And as, as, as you mentioned already, the, the $2.5 that we just raised, that's, again, another chance for us to, to build out that network and, and grow and prove what we intend to prove uh, our model can deliver. And so uh, at, at moments, are, there's certainly frustration, but to, to be honest, we, we look at it more from the positive status. This is, uh, it really is an, an interesting time to be a social entrepreneur in that there is capital available um, sometimes it's harder to access than you'd like, but it is available to us. The, what makes it difficult for for us specifically is that we work in a, in the power sector, and the power sector has a very uh, standard way of being financed. The typical power sector project has generally long-term returns, uh, payback period on infrastructure of you know, 15 plus years, and therefore they get a lot of public financing uh, the right cu- these are the, these the big cu- big uh,
0: product finance that World Bank and all that would would be working right with this
2: government exactly mm-hmm. that's right and and so generally they they the, the the government is there to purchase power from from for, for example a coal power plant and and so you or you get subsidies on distribution transmission you get there's a lot of p- public capital that comes into it uh, those those systems tend to be more commercially viable when you're serving higher-end customers that are consuming more power. Um, you start, you really look at urban areas over rural areas, and so we've we've take, we've basically. But it's also very polluting, model.
0: right? A lot of those. Those are, I mean, again, those are, I mean, coal-powered and and, yeah. and diesel and so on and so forth. They're very, uh, they're not, they're awful for the environment.
3: They,
2: absolutely and, that, and that's so I think the the benefit of what we can provide is 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 clear but the, the challenges that financiers face is that despite the fact they like the idea that we're we're using renewables we're, we're serving communities we're doing so in a way that they're completely unaccustomed to seeing the power sector we're looking at re- remote rural areas instead of urban areas we're looking at really uh, poor customers who are using very basic amount of power instead of high-consuming high, use, high consuming, uh, customers. We're not getting public subsidies uh, at, at all. The, the government of India does not provide support for companies such as ours in the work that we're doing. And so, um, and, and at the same time, we're trying to flip this into uh, into a model where we're serving ultra-poor cu- customers without public funding, and we're trying to create a, a profitable model with a uh, three- to four-year payback period on infrastructure. And so it sounds, it sounds too, too different for many financiers in the power sector, traditional power sector financiers, for them to, to really get their, get their heads around. And so that makes it more complicated for us in terms of raising money because the, the investors themselves need to be completely reoriented towards how they look at the power sector because it is so different. Um, At the same time, if we are able to do that, I think we have a great great chance of converting a potential investor into an investor because they they see that that great potential and how our model simplifies some of the challenges that uh, traditional power sector companies face. But it does take a really long
0: but uh, Nikhil, you do do bring up two things, which is obviously, you know, there is a market there. It's, It's a difficult market. There is a market there, which you have shown. Um, and you have figured out a price point for the end customer, and these are really the poorest of the poor. But you are managing to still work with them and make it something that's affordable. And the second thing is the fact that um, you know this is a you have been able to do something which has created a very equitable um, society. And you know in terms in terms of getting access, this is one of the basic human needs now. Um, so, you know, it is, it is very interesting, I guess, uh, in terms of looking at the whole um, picture that what you have done is what's is, is, so needed. Now, how do we bring this to other parts of India, to other parts of the world? I mean, what is the plan?
2: Mm-hmm. Our, our plan right now is to continue financing our, uh, our micrograde expansion through, through whatever capital we can raise uh, directly from private sources. But in, in time, what we'd love to do is be able to showcase this as a real model for, for a true um, r- rural or, or geographic electrification strategy that is comprehensive and not collective. So when you, when I, what I mean by that is if you look at grid electrification, um, grid electrification is really going to hit the towns and any large villages along a, a, a road, uh, a paved road. Um, you know, we, we've looked at some of the microgrids, some of the, the larger mini-grids, solar-powered mini-grids. Those, those solar-powered mini-grids can serve kind of that same rural market. But if you look at the off-grid communities, and we've done some mapping um, that, that shows where these off-grid communities are And if you look at where the off-grid communities are, they are not near the roads. They're in these small clusters, small hamlets of of 50 or fewer households. They're away from the paved roads a kilometer, two kilometers away. So if you want to have a a really comprehensive electrification strategy, whether that be the, the government of India, whether it be the World Bank, whether it be an organization like Smart Power India that's funded by Rockefeller, you simply cannot afford... To only look at a single model because none of these models would be able to, to none of these, these traditional models will be able to serve the customers we're serving. And and if you leave out a truly remote rural electrification component to any electrification strategy, you are leaving a significant and consciously leaving out a significant portion uh, if not the majority of the off-grid population in North India. And so it's really important for us to work with some of these stakeholders. To get them accustomed to the idea and the approach that we take, so that we can uh, become integrated into these strategies, these electrification strategies, and help all these organizations achieve the the goals that they have as well, which is which is uh, true and 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 free and fair electrification services to to all, not just to to the urban or to the relatively well off.
0: Great. Well, Nikhil, you know, we are, we are out of time, but this was, I wow, this went so fast because it was absolutely, you know, fantastic to speak with you. And uh, thank you for being on the call. And uh, yeah, and, you know, we will we'll let you know when this thing airs. But thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Aria. It was an enjoyable conversation. I appreciate you guys taking
1: the time. You're listening to From the Backstreet to Wall Street, I'm Mukul Pandya, Editor-in-Chief of Knowledge at Wharton.
0: So let's get started. So we are absolutely thrilled today to have with us Mr. David Allen. Um, David is the Executive Director of a Melbourne-based family office, and uh, he has been there since 2013. And uh, this family office is actually uh, doing some fantastic work um, in the areas of livelihood and climate solution among the indigenous community in Australia and then also in Southeast Asia. So we're absolutely thrilled to have David with us all the way from Australia. So welcome to the show, David. Thank you, Doreen. Good. Um, so let's kind of jump right in because we are very excited. You're our first guest from Australia. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself and you know what got you started uh, with this family office. How did, how did the journey um, begin?
3: Yeah, sure. It of a a long time ago. Uh, I studied manufacturing engineering in the UK and France and pursued a career in finance um, through investment banking and private equity and was always intrigued by the value created by growth companies. They joined three different startups, uh, two in London, and then having married Australian, um, moved to Melbourne six years ago I had a, go at a third startup here in Melbourne, and uh, four years ago I joined the Family Foundation, and it was very exciting to combine the uh, experience of the startup world with the giving um, something—not giving something, something back—but actually combining that. What does good and doing good look like with the business skills that I'd acquired?
0: Right. So, when, um, so, you know, this is obviously uh, the family office that you joined, which, by the way, just for the listeners, uh, we can't disclose the name, um, but they are doing fantastic work. And, uh, um, you know, it is a sort of a good way to sort of get into the whole discussion of, you know, do you see the family offices in Australia getting into this? Or was this something unusual uh, for the one you're with? Or did you have to convince them? I mean, what was it?
3: the families that, that I'm working for um, have built a global business. So their, their peers and their inspiration comes from other family offices around the world. So there was not much convincing to do. They were very specific in the, the impact that they want to have in the areas they want to have. It. And for them, it's all about how do, you, how do we achieve impact at scale? And sometimes a grant is the right tool and sometimes an investment is the right tool. And they were looking for, um, yeah, they were looking for the right staff to put into their foundation to make that happen. It's, it's becoming more common in Australia, but I think we look more to our inspiration um, to peers in, in London or New York or San Francisco.
0: Right. So they're, they, they were sort of one of the pioneers. And in terms of sort of the, the focus areas um, that your, the trust has, can you tell us a little bit about it and why those focus areas and what it means for impact investing in Australia and beyond?
3: Mm. Yeah, so in the last four years, we've, we've narrowed it down. It was, it was five focus areas plus a couple of others. Uh, now we've narrowed it down to four, which mm-hmm. is Indigenous Australia, disability, climate change, and Christian faith. Um, and I think each of them has a, a special reason. Um, Indigenous Australia, because we can't overlook the issues which are facing this society uh, and just skip off overseas. There are some real things that we need to sort out here. Uh, Disability is uh, an industry that the family has worked in and has a personal um, connection with, so that's always going to be core. Um, Climate change was, uh, and I I think rightly considered, to be the biggest challenge facing the world today, um, and so that's the one that we focused on. And then Christian Faith is um, part of the inspiration for the establishment of the trust anyway, and so that's also an important part of, of the family office.
0: And is there sort of in terms of now your portfolio that you're looking at, I mean, of course, today's discussion is, um, you know, about how we have uh, universal, achieve universal um, access to energy. I mean, so how do you, how has that translated in terms of your investment, you know, in the, the clean energy side? Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
3: Yeah, we've we've struggled on the granting side to work out how grant dollars convert into less carbon in the atmosphere. And so we've done quite a bit of investing around the carbon space some of that's in mm-hmm. um, sequestering projects some of it's in um, grid stability and renewables here in Australia and we have um, we've done a few in more developing markets in terms of yeah energy access solar on rooftops and uh, and more recently one in Cambodia with biodigesters um, producing renewable gas is that the right word but producing mm-hmm. gas from yeah, um, yeah. from mm-hmm. waste.
0: Yeah, the biogas. Um,
3: uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think the the thing that's really exciting about this the developing market opportunities is that you have both the opportunity to help those countries develop in a way which is car, clean, or cleaner uh, in terms of carbon, right. but also you're increasing their incomes, and, and with increasing incomes comes more choices and better health and, and all sorts of other living standard improvements.
0: So they almost, it sounds like, obviously, these investments that you're making, um, there are several layers of impact. So obviously, the, the first and foremost on the climate side, but seems like, obviously, there's a whole social element to it, which, of course, you know, we see this. But I'm curious, and also for the audience, it'll be kind of interesting to get your perspective on this more um, expansive sort of the impact of these investments, and how do you look at it, how do you measure it?
3: I think some of these problems are, can only be addressed with a profit model. I think the analogy I use when we're looking at where do we start on granting into poverty and disadvantage, which used to be one of our focus areas but no longer is, was there's a billion people without toilets in the world. So how do you give away a billion toilets and keep them serviced? And you just can't. So you need a profit model um, that will deliver them, install them, and keep them maintained. And I think that's the same with energy access as well. So the profit motive is there help us achieve scale and help us achieve energy access for the masses, because it's the only thing that can keep these services um, sustainable. So we're looking right. for a model that is that is inherently profitable and scalable, and they've got plans to scale. They don't just want to do their village or their country, but they're, they're looking at how can we really take this to, to a massive population. So population service is one measure. Tons of carbon is, is another. And where there's a proxy for it, the third one we look at is income either increased income or, or reduced costs to the family and the household. Um, just because as we look at all of the issues uh, and all of the, the knocks that developing families get, or families in the developing world get, um, increased income is sort of the biggest thing that they can have to, to roll with those and educate their kids and medicate people as they get sick and make different choices. So I think it's three. It's, it's number of people, tons of carbon and, and family income are the three measures that we look at.
0: Right. No, it. It. I mean. I mean. It, that makes complete sense. Now, I'm going to dig a little bit deeper because, um, you know, at Ix, we of course have done some work with you, and uh, and I think it's it's interesting if you look at it. Um, I mean, they are, as you rightly said. I mean, there are billions of people actually worldwide. The number in Asia it's over a billion. In worldwide, it's about three billion people worldwide who are still using you know mm-hmm. fossil fuel. Um, and uh, interestingly, you know, of course, this is a major cause of indoor and outdoor pollution and, you know, the health impact and obviously the climate impact, et cetera. And um, I was, of course, astounded when, when I read these numbers that, you know, just almost over four million deaths, you know, just just from mm. from, uh, from all of this. So anyway, so I, the fam- your family office, you, you know, recently invested um, in a biodigester company in, in Cambodia. Now, of course, these biodigesters, they're a new trend, and it's fantastic that it's allowing these rural communities to to collect and treat manure and um, and Mm. the the kitchen waste, whatever, and convert them into biogas. Now, just really sort of going a little bit to the next level with this, I mean, why did you target this investment? I mean, is it because of the scalability? Is it because they're reusing the material which is there? greater impact to the country I mean what was that triggered you or is it the ease of it the fact that oh this is this organization had to act together I mean what what was it
3: yeah there's lots of elements that went into making an attractive investment for us um, I think the first one that got our attention was it was a' it was a business that was reducing um, carbon emissions increasing incomes and perhaps most importantly in the first um, sweep is it was in Southeast Asia we we are Close to the region, we feel that we have a, um, an opportunity to to invest into this region, um, not just into Africa and Latin America, and, and we hadn't done very much, so we were quite actively looking for opportunities to invest. So when we saw one that seemed to fit, um, we, we definitely looked at it pretty hard and, and pretty enthusiastically. It was um, We were familiar with the, biodig- the biodigester technology from having looked at bigger-scale plants um, within Australia and other parts of the developed world. So that was a, we understood the technology. Is that so big that in the developed
0: world? I mean, sorry to interrupt, but um, just for our listeners, I mean, is this something that's big and and very much in use in the developed world, the biodigesters?
3: No, it's not. It's, it's one of the, you know, emerging technologies that gets kicked around the fringes. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
3: But I, I've, I've seen a few um, in different places, whether they're, um, Actually, now I think about it, they weren't in the developed world at all. One was in Cuba, one was in Indonesia, and, and there are some in, in Australia. But, and they're not mainstream, okay. but the technology is... It's a, it's a feature of the renewable energy landscape. We're definitely kind of familiar with how they work. And, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think typically we would use the gas then to um, fire a turbine rather than um, use for indoor cooking, but um, at least that part of the process I was familiar with. One of the other big things for us was it was an investment that came uh, introduced through a co-investor that we have a fairly long relationship with uh, and have shared a few deals with. And the chief executive who's running the business at the moment, although he's based in Cambodia, is an Australian. So there was a fairly warm introduction and um, some good personal trust going into the deal, which was, was very important. Um, and I don't right. think as we looked at the, looked at the business model, um, mm-hmm. and they seemed to have the different elements of um, logistics, financing, service, and international expansion, they kind of had worked that out, and I could imagine how that model would scale pretty well. So, yeah, they had, they had most of the elements that we were looking for. I was pretty impressed.
0: Right. And there's, of course, the this, this scalability element to it as well, as you we were mentioning earlier on. Um, in terms of being able to replicate it across
3: the country? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, this particular company is producing household-level biodigesters, which is a plastic drum, which is two meters tall and a meter and a bit in uh, diameter. So it's a pretty big thing. So it's hard to um, imagine how that could possibly be scalable. But actually, to manufacture, it can be quite easily manufactured in almost any um, plastic manufacturing factory in any country uh, as long as you've got the right to uh, produce the design. Um, So we checked out the IP pretty well um, Mm
1: -hmm.
3: and then we're happy that they could contract manufacture in whichever country they were to reduce the shipping uh, and supply line.
1: I I wonder if uh, you think about all the investments that you have made uh, 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 in in the last few years, uh, what are some of the common themes across those investments? What are some of the criteria that you have used to decide what to invest in and and uh, things that you've decided to pass on?
3: Well, the very high-level thing that we use for everything, whether it's an investment or a grant, is, is the model scalable? Um, has the model demonstrated some momentum? So, in a business, has is there any sales? So, we very rarely back an idea. Um, we have backed something that's only had $1,000 of sales, um, but it proved that there was consumer appetite for the product um, and, and the third and most important one is: Are they great people? And those three tests are our very first and our and best tests for whether we'll then look at something more closely.
0: So, David, just to just to sort of um, carry on the theme in terms of obviously um, you are with your investments, you are bringing in um, clean energy to these uh, you know very you know so these remote places where they need it now. Mm. is that risky? I mean, do you think is there, I mean, is sort of this, in, in common term, we call it, of course, off-grid, right, off-grid, clean energy. Yeah. I mean, is that more risky? Is that uh, something so way out there? I mean, how would you say that vis-à-vis investing in a power, power grid, you know, and uh, and how would that sort of scale up, and, you know, sort of in your mind in, in kind of the investment world?
3: Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating question. I... I think there are risks investing on grid. I think, um, particularly with the scale of capital that you're using and the changing patterns of use and in the developed world, the increasing um, incidence of renewables and, and how that's changing um, the, the energy grids that we have from sort of one way grids, where from the, the mass generator out to the consumer to sort of two way grids and multi way grids, they will become very different things in the future. So let's not kid ourselves that on grid is, is without risk these days um but off-grid has its own set of risks you know customers are hard to find they don't have a zip code um they you know probably have a phone number um and the, the key in these businesses is to find someone who can build and retain high-quality local people who will build relationships with the villagers and know where they are maintain the systems well um, and so it's really the people management and the processes which are in place right. to overcome the risks of being off-grid and not having the business infrastructure that we take for granted in the West.
0: Right, right. And it sounds like it just, you know, with off-grid, it, again, it's a it's a market that needs to be addressed, but it's a market that needs to be addressed in a more, much more holistic way in terms of going, you know, deep even into the details of how the payment is going to be made. Is it going to be something that's affordable? For the end user and uh, making sure, you know, sort of the whole impact carries on in that level as well. So, yeah, I mean, it is, but I think, but it is supremely rewarding, obviously, because it is something that, you know, they need and the impact is incredible. So, um, you know, kudos to you for, for doing these investments. I mean, in terms of sort of even looking at your portfolio and if you see the um, just as we're talking about risk, I mean, I mean, how do you sort of, what, what strategies do you take? I mean, is it, uh, in terms of your portfolio, and I, you know, we like asking this to various, you know, investors and family offices we have had on mm-hmm. the show before. Um, you know, share some, if you can share some thoughts with us on that.
3: Risks a really interesting one. I think in the market and the stage of company that we, that we're investing in, mm-hmm. it's a risky thing to do. Um and I think uh, the big three questions I outlined earlier about, is a model scalable, is an event, and are you backing great people, are really the greatest mitigators you have against making a mistake. Um, mm-hmm. And other than that, it's a question of knowing what risks you're taking and being comfortable with those risks, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Well, one of the strange things that's happening in one of our investments at the moment is that they've worked out that the business has grown incredibly well. It's... it's huge and it's multinational and it's it's, it's going really well. But the more recent investors have noticed that you can make more money from the emerging middle classes than serving the very bottom of the pyramid um, at a keratin replacement kind of price point. And so they're moving up market and it's making the business even more profitable and it's making it a great investment. But we're sitting here kind of thinking that we're not quite having the impact at the social level that we had hoped we'd we're going to make when we first made the investment mm. a few years ago. Um, and that's one of the risks that, that we're now turning our attention to. How can we bake the social um, purpose into into some of these businesses? Now, the one we've just done in Cambodia is a B Corp, so that's, um, that's helping a lot. Um, right. But, yeah, there's different kinds of risk when you think about this kind of um, strategy.
0: But it's also interesting. There's a definite, obviously, correlation between we see with... Um you know at IX, the the risk and the impact and the financial return. And we almost always see the fact that the more social impact an organization has, uh, it really brings down the risk because again, you know because the community wants it to be there and it's doing good work for the community. so uh, so it is very interesting. And I think you know sort of with that, I mean, you know this in this show, we always try to sort of uh, bring in the the discussion around, uh, building the pathway, sort of, you know, in terms of mm. what we say sort of backstreet to Wall Street. So what do you think? I mean, in terms of, you know, Australia, in terms of family offices there, you, or even in a, in a larger scale, um, you know, can, you know, can we actually look at climate adaptation, um, you know, as one of the ways that we can actually create this bridge, you know, in terms of bringing more people, you know, into into the capital markets, um, and kind of be able to deliver energy you know to all across the globe or is it sort of a pipe dream can we use finance no it's definitely not a pipe finance? dream
3: um and like i see the, the risk that i've talked about us taking and, and people like us taking i think it's critical i think um when you look at wall street and the people who are managing our pensions and our insurance funds um, we don't want them taking this kind of risk um So I I see our role as critical in in taking these ideas that have some promise uh, and helping them grow and helping them get to a point where they have a a bigger revenue, bigger customer base, and from a corporate sense, lower risks. And and if their model is scaling and their model is growing, they will need the bigger checks that come from those institutions um, at a point when the risk profile is lower. So I, I very much see... Um, the role of family offices and, and charitable trusts using um, their capital as pioneer money. And sure, you know you should get rewarded for the risks you're taking. Um, I, I'm not expecting um, the pension managers to be taking those risks um, because they shouldn't. But they should be there coming when um, when we do need to take models which are proven to even greater scale. Um, and so that's how I envisage the bridge, and that's the role that we're playing. And it, it's a role that I'm really excited to play.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's an important one in terms of in, in the value chain. So, you know, thank you for all the work that you're doing. Um, Mukul, do you have any other questions for David?
1: Yeah, I mean, one question I have is when you when you look to the future uh, of, uh, you know, where, where you would like to have the most impact that you're not having yet, uh, where, where do you see your family office going over the next, say, three to five years?
3: I think the one area that I haven't yet cracked is, combining um, land management or agricultural uses with sequestering carbon with increasing incomes, and whether that's in um, remote Australia or whether that's through Southeast Asia, that, that's the business I'm looking for next. I think if we can work out how to feed people and give people income at the same time as not just emitting less carbon but actually sucking it up, I think that's, that's, yeah, that's what I want to do.
1: Great. I think, uh, uh, Doreen, I think we're almost out of time, if you have any final
0: questions. Yes, yes. And just to to, to finish on that, David, I think that work is slowly, you know, it is happening. So so the dots are being connected. So it's great that you're looking at it. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. This was a fantastic conversation. And uh, thank you for being on the show.
3: Well, thank you so much for taking an interest, and and thank you for the opportunity to talk about it.
0: For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.